0: This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. And joining me today is Gene Whalen, a journalist from the Wall Street Journal Jean has written numerous articles on the opioid epidemic on topics including how schools are stepping up efforts to fight the opioid addiction, about the surge in babies that are affected by the opioid-related problems in rural America, and how health care reform could drastically reduce insurance coverage. And finally, about uh, an article, compelling article, about the Chinese connection that's fueling America's Fentanyl Crisis. So, Jean, welcome. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Okay. So, where I'd like to start is with your story on schools and what they're doing to help fight the opioid epidemic. And specifically, mm-hmm. you reported on a nonprofit in Lake Forest, Illinois by the name of LEED, linking efforts against drugs that developed a tool that they called the Text a Tip. Can you tell us about that program?
2: yeah, it's a great tool that's now being used in some schools in the suburbs of Chicago and Los Angeles, where um, the school provides kids with a new with a texting app that allows them to anonymously text a counselor who's on call ready to answer their questions um, at any time of the day or night. and if they're you know if they're at a party or they're feeling um, sad, they can, They can text this counselor and ask for some help. You know, I'm at a party. People want me to use drugs or alcohol. How do I get out of this? Or, you know, the questions can range very widely. They don't have to be substance abuse related. They can be related to suicidal thoughts and all sorts of things. And the app disguises um, the phone number of the kid, the teen, so that they can feel comfortable knowing that nobody knows who they are. And there's a, a counselor waiting on the other end to, to answer their questions and give them advice. And um, the schools seem to think it works quite well.
1: And I understand that all of the counselors are certified counselors as opposed to just volunteers off the street, per se.
2: They are. They are licensed therapists, and they get paid. So, um, you know, it's not it's not as though the system is relying on the goodwill of volunteers. These The therapists are getting paid. So it's a job that they take seriously and are available and um you know the the nonprofit that came up with this tool charges the school systems um just enough to cover the cost of paying the therapists really. They charge about um seventy five hundred dollars a year for the service, um and I think that's a charge for each school district, and then there's a, a small per student fee as well of about forty nine cents a year. <laughs> So um yeah so the, these are you know licensed therapists who really know what they're doing and um so far the, the schools seem to think it's working well.
1: Yeah that's what uh it it sounded I I had a chance to briefly talk to the executive mm-hmm. of um, of that nonprofit of lead and uh he shared that their uh, their results have have really been promising so uh, so that's that's excellent.
2: Yep yeah.
1: um so, you know, the
2: one example of a therapist I talked to said they had a, they'll have kids text at a party saying, there are kids around me using and I don't know what to do. And the therapist will write back and say, can you distract yourself? Can you leave? Can you call a friend or an adult to pick you up? And and she said that they don't always hear back from the kids. They don't always know how the problem was resolved. Um, You know, which can be a little hair-raising for the therapist, I think. But they at least know that the child got their advice and and hopefully took some comfort from it.
1: Yeah. Now let's move on to a program that the CVS actually is involved in, where they go into the schools and they talk about um, prevention and uh, prescription drugs in particular. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how a school system might engage them?
2: Sure. Um, CVS started doing this in 2015, I believe, um, and they just started sending their own pharmacists into local schools to talk about the dangers of abusing uh, prescription drugs and you know pills of various kinds. Um, the pharmacists have given several thousand of these presentations in 40 states now, so it's it's quite a big program. Um, and and I believe that all a school would need to do is call up CVS and ask them to send somebody out. Um, the pharmacists in a lot of communities are glad to do this because they're they're kind of at the front lines of all of this. They're seeing, um, you know, patients come in trying to fill prescriptions that are maybe fraudulent or, um, you know, so they, they've certainly been aware of this problem for a long time. Um, but so, yes, yeah, so a pharmacist will go into a school, typically a high school or a middle school, and talk about, you know, one pharmacist I talked to said she starts out by listing a whole list of brand name prescription painkillers like Norco and OxyContin, Lortab. She'll also mention the generic names of some like fentanyl. And she'll ask the children, you know, have you heard of these? And Um, You know, she says sometimes there's some giggling because some of those pills are named in pop songs these days. You know, a lot of these drugs have become kind of part of pop culture, sadly. Uh, Anyway, um, so she'll start talking about why they are dangerous to take in a non-medical fashion. And um, she will uh, then talk about... often they end up playing a video describing how teens who started out misusing this kind of medication ended up getting hooked and addicted very quickly. Um, They show an example of four teens who kind of had a downward spiral, one of whom died in an overdose, others who were, um, you know, sent to rehab, one who was even paralyzed by the, the bad effects of an overdose. And, um, the pharmacist I talked to said that that video really hits home for kids because they see it can happen to anyone, to, you know, the school jock, a good student, anybody, you know, it's someone like them. So, so that's, that's really the program. And, um, as I say, it's happening in a lot of states around the country.
1: Wow, that, that sounds great. Sounds very powerful. Um, another program that you talked about is Botvin Life Skills, a program that teaches kids strong decision-making skills to resist pressure to abuse substances. And apparently in studies, it has been extremely successful in reducing the probability that prescription pills in particular would be abused uh, before the 12th grade. It cuts down on that in a big way.
2: That's right. Yeah, there was a study done in middle school children in Iowa and Pennsylvania where they started out um, giving these kids the Botson program in school, in, in middle school. And um, the program is, is generally given over about 15 sessions over several weeks. Often it's done in health class or the teacher weaves it into part of the general curriculum I don't know, maybe during a social studies or a reading class. And um the study found that as they followed these children over the years into high school, um, they found that the children who had received this botfin training meant to build their self esteem and their problem solving and their decision making skills were significantly significantly less likely to abuse prescription opioids. By grade twelve, by their I guess their senior year of high school, compared with a control group of children who had not received the training, um, and I, I believe the study simply asked the children once a year, "Have you have you used prescription opioids for non medical purposes?" So yeah, I suppose it's possible that children lied, right? Um, so yeah, maybe the study wasn't perfect, but they did they were confident that there was a significant reduction. Thanks to this this program, so it, it does seem to have some good effects.
1: Wow, uh, that sounds powerful.
2: Yeah, and it's it's now being used in a lot of schools around the country. It was developed by a psychologist at Cornell University, it developed many years ago, um, to be to be um, it really its its aims were quite broad. It was to help children resist peer pressure of all kinds, you know, to abuse alcohol or to engage in other risky behavior. And, and meant to just generally build their self-esteem and decision-making skills. So it's it's a program that's meant to be wider than just preventing substance abuse. Though that that's probably the reason that that more schools are adopting it at the moment. And and Boston is not the only such program. There are others, but it's just one that a number of school districts that I, that I talked to have been adopting.
1: Very good. Now let's move on to another topic that you wrote about, which is births of infants exposed in the womb to heroin and other opioids that's grown sixfold from 2004 mm-hmm. to 2013 in rural areas from just over mm-hmm. 1 per 1000 births to over 7 per 1000 births. That's right. Wow. So what do you attribute that?
2: Well, the the scientists who did this study and others who other experts on addiction who, uh, to whom I showed the study felt that probably the main reason was that there are not as many treatment and prevention programs for pregnant mothers or or women who are soon to become pregnant in rural communities. That there are fewer rehab centers, fewer counselors. There's Um, less access to medication-assisted treatment like buprenorphine or methadone. And um, because of that, the opioid crisis really is hitting rural areas um, harder than urban areas in some ways. I mean, the the lack of treatment and prevention is not the only reason for that. The tough economic climate in a lot of rural areas is also obviously a big factor, but um, but in this study, they felt that that the lack of treatment and prevention really was probably a big reason that the rates of these um, the, the rates of these births, so births of children who were born having been exposed to heroin or other opioids in the womb, grew sixfold over this time period in rural areas, while they grew threefold in urban areas. So it still a big growth in urban areas as well, but a much bigger problem in in rural areas.
1: One of the big problems with the opioid epidemic is the stigma associated with it. So Mm -hmm. do you feel, Jean, that the tide maybe is turning and people are becoming a little bit more willing to talk about the opioid problem, or are they still a little more concerned about the reputation of their community and being able to sell houses in the community?
2: I definitely think the tide is turning turning. I, you know, I've been writing about this for probably three years and and actually maybe four or five years ago, I also did a bit of reporting on heroin addiction in the UK where I used to live. And I feel over that time period, there's been a huge awakening among the general public about the size of this problem and much more willingness to talk about it, which is great. Um, even over the past two years, I've seen that. And obviously that's because it's just hitting so many more families and so many more communities. And um, so I I do feel that it's getting better. I mean, obviously there is still stigma. Children are afraid to come forward, or not just children, you know, anyone, an adult with, with addiction problems can be ashamed and afraid to come forward for help, afraid that their family members will reject them. But I think that with just the size of this problem, a lot of the addiction or a lot of the stigma is falling away. I I certainly meet tons of parents who want to talk to me about this now, who want to help prevent this problem for other families, which is great.
1: You also report on the age of patients displaying drug-seeking behavior. That keeps getting lower. Um, Can you speak to that a little bit?
2: You know, just the, the... impact of the opioid crisis on on children i've written about that quite widely i'm not sure i'm not sure if the age of drug seeking behavior is getting lower there may be data to show that but certainly it's it's low enough that it's alarming right we've got lots of middle school children and high school children um who abuse these drugs now who start abusing prescription drugs that they either get out of their parents medicine cabinet or they might buy on the street and you know, a lot of these opioids and prescription medicines are now the new alcohol or the new marijuana for for young children. Hmm. And um, as I'm sure you've read, one of the big new problems is that it's not just real pharmaceutical pills that they are stealing from their parents and abusing. It's they're buying pills off the street that they think are legitimate pharmaceutical pills, but that are actually counterfeit that have been made by traffickers they're made to look like prescription pills and they often contain things like fentanyl which is incredibly dangerous if taken at um you know improper levels so so it is a big problem um you know the, the things that help address that are are just the things that we all know about i think it's school programs to make sure kids learn about the dangers of prescription drugs and heroin and opioids of all kinds from a very very young age um, you know, I think a lot of drug prevention programs in schools probably start with things like um, alcohol and tobacco, and that's great. Those things, need, those lessons need to be taught at a young age as well, but I, I hope that schools are really cluing in now that they need to start talking about prescription drugs and opioids at a much younger age. Uh-huh. Um, they need to particularly drive home the point for children that not all pills are safe just because it looks like a medicine doesn't mean that it's safe. It, it more often than not now, if you're a young person getting your hands on medication in some sort of um, improper fashion, it's, it's very likely that medi- medication is counterfeit and quite dangerous. Um, and the other the other tools to prevent young kids from getting their hands on drugs are things like, you know, stricter prescribing of opioids, making sure doctors aren't giving parents or or teens for that matter teens with sports injuries or or other kinds of pain making sure they aren't giving giant quantities of things like oxycontin you know li- really limiting the dosage or trying non narcotic forms of pain pain relief first and i think doctors are getting better about that but probably a lot of public health officials feel that there's still too much prescribing of opioids out there yep. and it, one other thing i would mention is in terms of ways to help prevent this problem in young people. A lot of uh, doctors and, and experts in this area that I've talked to said there needs to be more research in the connect- connection between opioid use and depression in young people, that um, you know, depression can obviously start appearing in kids as young as middle school or high school, and that they often try to self-medicate to make themselves feel better. And in the past where that might have been with alcohol, You know, now, unfortunately, it's with a drug much stronger, an opioid. So there needs to be more attention paid to that and perhaps more research on how to to prevent that from happening.
1: Yeah, I think you're so right there. There's so many people that are uh, diagnosed with dual diagnosed, uh, both mental Mm -hmm. uh, issues as well as addiction. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, So... There's about $5.5 billion in addiction recovery health care funding kind of hanging in the balance with the repeal Mm -hmm. of the, if they do it, of the Affordable Care Act. Can you tell us a little bit about where you feel that stands?
2: Yeah, so this was uh, some research that recently came out from Harvard and New York University where they estimated that a a repeal of the Affordable Care Act of Obamacare, which is the same thing, um, would withdraw about five point five billion dollars in annual funding for the treatment of mental health conditions generally, including substance abuse. so the five point five billion is the money that Obamacare um, added to treatment of all mental health conditions, including substance abuse, um, and that a repeal would would take that money out of the system and the main ways that 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 the affordable care act slash Obamacare um, added that money to the system was by expanding Medicaid in a lot of states, so Medicaid, even before Obamacare was passed, was the largest provider of mental health services slash substance abuse services to to Americans. It was the largest payer for those services in the country, and when the affordable care act uh, gave new federal funds to the states to increase their, the number of people they could enroll in Medicaid. Uh, that meant that many more people received Medicaid in a lot of states and were able to start getting mental health or substance abuse treatment. So if you take away the Affordable Care Act, that money goes away. It, it, the Affordable Care Act also allowed people to buy their own health insurance, um, through these government-run websites, essentially, um, that sold insurance plans. And the law gave a lot of Americans, a lot of low-income Americans, subsidies to help them buy this insurance. And the law required that insurance bought through those government-run websites um, had to cover certain essential health benefits, including substance abuse treatment. So anyone who bought an Obamacare health plan through those government exchanges um was getting insurance that had to cover substance abuse treatment by law and so again if you take away those those insurance plans if you close the affordable care act health uh, health insurance exchanges that that coverage will go away as well so it, there are a lot of people now a lot of uh, substance abuse treatment advocates who are kind of up in arms about this and trying to lobby Republican Senators, in particular, and particularly in states that have been hard hit by opioid addiction, to you know, saying, "Hey, you've said we need to tackle the opioid crisis. Well, you know, you can't you can't just repeal the ACA without some replacement plan that preserves this, these gains that we've made in in substance abuse treatment.
1: Do they have a proposal to replace that?
2: <laughs> That's a million dollar question. I think, honestly, I don't even have the answer to that. It it sounds like the the Republican Party is now starting to to float proposals, but I think the simple answer is no. There's not anything solid, and certainly very few of us understand whether Republicans in Congress agree with the Trump White House on what needs to be done. They've they've put out very mixed messages about their intentions for healthcare reform. So I, I certainly don't have much idea what they're planning to do
1: now. Very troubling. Okay. Yeah. Um, you wrote about a. Uh, let's move on to another topic. You wrote, wrote about a small town cop in Wisconsin taking extreme mm-hmm. measures to track down dealers outside his jurisdiction. And you made mm-hmm. the point that the dealer makes about $200 per gram of heroin uh, on the market in a rural market like Superior, Wisconsin, where that was, the story was based, versus mm-hmm. 50 to 100 in Chicago. So do you find that trend happening elsewhere?
2: I mean, certainly for this story, I concentrated mostly on northern Wisconsin and northern Minnesota and its connection to dealers from Chicago. But but I did talk to law enforcement all over the country as I was reporting that story. And, And they generally said, yes, that that is the case, that part of the reason a lot of dealers are branching out from their traditional urban markets well, a the biggest reason is there's demand for these drugs in rural markets now, but it's also it's also incredibly lucrative for them to go sell in smaller towns because there's not as much competition among sellers and they can charge more. So you see a lot of expansion from urban hubs into smaller communities. You know, people branching out from Baltimore and Washington D.C. into Western Maryland and Western Virginia into the smaller towns of those communities. Um, Chicago dealers going eight hours north to Duluth, Minnesota or Superior, Wisconsin to sell in, in those towns. And, um, you know, and it's not, it's not just big city dealers targeting those towns. There are a lot of, um, dealers living in those smaller communities that that sell these drugs as well. Sometimes, in cahoots with with a dealer from a, from a bigger city, um, or sometimes just by ordering the drugs themselves through the mail. You know, you can increasingly now buy Sentinel from China. You can order it online and have it shipped to you. So there have been there's been a growing number of cases now that prosecutors around the country are prosecuting of kind of small time smaller town dealers who've bought fentanyl online from a Chinese supplier and have sold it to their you know, local community. So it's, um, there are lots of ways that drugs make it to small towns, and, and the big incentive for the dealers is money.
1: Yeah. Well, that brings about another point. You, you also wrote about the Chinese connection fueling America's fentanyl crisis. Traffickers mm-hmm. purchase their key ingredients from China, which doesn't regulate its sale. So, why is That's that right and what what can be done about that gene
2: oh it's it's a big problem um yeah so the the main ingredients used to make fentanyl are these two chemicals that china China does not regulate the sale of them, meaning that any company that wants any Chinese company that wants to sell these two chemical ingredients can can do so without much scrutiny from regulators. They can sell it domestically or they can export it um the chemicals are regulated in the U.S. You're not allowed to just import these without having special permission from federal authorities if you're in the U.S. But what happens often is Chinese sellers will sell these ingredients to traffickers in Mexico who then um, who have some chemistry expertise and can turn the ingredients into finished fentanyl and that then gets smuggled into the U.S. So that's one that's one thing that China is exporting. China is also exporting finished fentanyl and and similar drugs, similar opioid drugs. And they Chinese companies export those to Mexico to big cartels or they or they export them directly to the US. And it's it's a very complicated picture because China does officially regulate some of these substances like officially it's it's not legal for a chinese company to sell fentanyl for non-medical uses um but the the enforcement of that regulation is not very strong in china and so there seem to be a lot of companies that are exporting it anyway so so there's there's that there is the chemicals that they do regulate that people just export anyway and then there's the vast number of chemicals and and ingredients that they don't regulate, where it's even easier for uh, Chinese companies to export. So it, it's a mess. And, and you asked, how do we solve that? Well, you know, the U.S. government is trying to put pressure on China to crack down on all of this. They they had a bit of success. Uh, I think it was this week we had a story saying that China had finally agreed to start regulating the sale and export of a couple of of heroin-like substances known as carfentanil and fentanyl. Those are some of the street opioids that have been causing a lot of overdose deaths in the U.S. in recent years. So China will now regulate the sale of those substances, meaning it will be illegal for a company to sell those for non-medical use. Um, but, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. Do we does China actually follow through and enforce that regulation, or do we continue to see these drugs, um, you know, hitting our market from from China?
1: And can you cite uh, some of the key ingredients? Like, uh, well, first of all, you you mentioned in in one of your articles, NPP is one of the key ingredients uh, used to make That's fentanyl.
2: Right. Yeah. So there are there are a couple of different um, types of chemicals that China is exporting. The first is chemical ingredients that you can't just sniff or inject on their own they won't they won't make you high you need to you need to um, put them through a chemical reaction in order to turn them into a drug right so the ingredients used to make fentanyl are called npp and anpp those are the two main chemicals those are not regulated in china so that's that's kind of the base most basic level of chemicals that china's exporting then there is also then there is finished narcotic drug that China is exporting. Um, many of these are opioids um, with names such as fentanyl, um, and that sort of thing. Um, well, those are not really the two main levels. So it's ingredients used to make opioids, and it is the opioids themselves. Okay. And the opioids themselves have lots of different names, many of which include the base word fentanyl.
1: Okay. And they're beginning to regulate those finished products, I'll call them, of carfentanol and fentanyl, but the key ingredients are still not controlled. The NPP and ANPP. And so you cite one of the examples in your article of 25 grams of NPP, the key ingredient in fentanyl, can be purchased for $87 from China today. And and when they combine that with about $720 worth of other chemicals that are used in the process that they can obtain Mm -hmm. here, the result is – a street value of in pills that can be produced from this of over eight hundred thousand dollars
2: yeah it's it's insane isn't it the 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 low cost of producing this stuff and the giant profits to be made are a big reason why these sort of synthetic opioids are becoming a much bigger part of the illegal drug market now and that and in some places are um, supplanting heroin because heroin is is more expensive to make. You have to grow a whole field of poppies and harvest it and protect your land from you know the police or from other traffickers. You don't need any of that with these synthetic opioids that are made from chemicals. You just need the chemicals, which are pretty cheap, and you need some chemical know-how to turn them into drugs. So, so it's it's a huge problem, and, and the way to try to make a dent in it uh, there you know just a couple of basic things like as i said earlier p- trying to put more pressure on china to um, which is the main source for most of these chemicals to crack down on their sale and and i know that um u.s you know the state department is doing that it is trying to to put pressure on china it's also trying to get the united nations to uh, more closely regulate the international trade of, of some of these substances John Kerry last fall actually wrote a letter to UN saying, hey, you UN really need to start more closely regulating global trade of of NPP and ANPP, those two ingredients used to make fentanyl that we talked about. So Hmm. so it's really, you know, putting pressure on China and the UN. Um, Obviously, any attempts to try to better stop drugs from coming in from our southern border from Mexico would also help. I mean, that's been such a long-standing problem that it's hard to know how to tackle that really, but clearly that would help. And and most importantly, you know, just reducing demand for this stuff here in the US. That's that's the main driver of all of this, unfortunately, is is our own demand for it.
1: Wow. This has been very enlightening. Thank you, Jean. Uh, Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners about what you've learned in your extensive reporting about the opioid epidemic?
2: I mean, I would say just keep, keep talking. Parents need to keep talking to each other. People who have addiction themselves need to talk to their friends and family and get help. They need to join support groups where they can talk to other addicts and learn about how to cope. Um, parents need to talk to their kids from a very young age and make sure they know about the danger of all of these substances, which, as I said earlier, are just so different from the substances parents probably encountered when they were young. You know, alcohol and pot are really just just the beginning now of this cornucopia of drugs that kids might encounter, and they really need to know that just because something looks like a pill does not make it safe. Um, So talking, I think, is the main thing, making sure everyone is talking about it and and looking for ways to solve the problem.
1: Great. Again, thank you, Jean. Thank you very much. Okay. We've been joined today by Jean Whalen, journalist for The Wall Street Journal, who has written extensively about the opioid epidemic and has uncovered several uh, very effective programs in helping prevent Uh, additional spread of this terrible disease. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover2Resources. Thank you for joining us for this podcast.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover2Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover2Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the COVER2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.